Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Psychosocial Distancing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Chadbourne. With me, as always, is Thomas Brooks. Oh, hello. <laughs> so we're going to continue pseudoscience today, Thomas. And, we are. Uh, I think it's going to be a doozy. Yes. Um, I, I have already decided on what the name of this episode is going to be, and I'm going to read it. And and then I will reveal what it actually means as we move forward. Okay. I, we might come up with a better name, but I, I really don't think. It says, so my working title right now is Getting That M Big Dip and Other Life Goals Devoid of Psychological Science. <laughs> M Big Dip? That M Big Dip. And I will explain <laughs> what in big dip is um, as we talk about my contribution to this uh, episode. And, and in this episode, we're going to talk about pseudopsychology specifically, or at least the beginning of pseudopsychology specifically. Mm. Um. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, we'll just give it away. Like today's yeah. theme is uh, parapsychology which is incredibly fascinating. Um, it's not terribly old. Um, it's been around since 1937. Um, so that's kind of like the birth of parapsychology and it actually comes out of uh, Duke University. Oh. Um, through a partnership between, let's see, uh, J.B. Rhine, who was originally a botanist, I believe, and then William McDougall, um, who is one of the early social psychology yeah. figures. I was like, that name sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. So not terribly old. And I think I would distinguish this like to build off of our last episode where we talked about the uh, pseudoscience of like psychoanalysis. Like that was science. That is what science was at the time. Yes. But this uh, parapsychology tries very, 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 very hard to be a science. And they actually did a pretty decent job in the early decades of their journal and society, etc. Um, But they get a little crazy. And I have like a really weird experiment for you um, a little bit later as we get into it. Ooh. But yeah, so started off as this uh exploration into ESP um so extra sensory perception which mm -hmm. is the idea that like um you can well really it is encompassed into three different categories it's uh shoot what are they called uh telepathy precognition and clairvoyance um telepathy being the transfer of information of thoughts or feelings between individuals by means other than the classical senses precognition is perception of information about future places or events before they occur and clairvoyance is obtaining information about places or events or remote locations by means unknown to current science so clairvoyance and precognition seem a little like they don't seem mutually exclusive right but most of the research that was done with the society actually was trying to untangle these three and like come up with research paradigms that could measure, say, telepathy without measuring, like without precognition or clairvoyance being a confound. And so these were like scientifically trained people 
who were like deeply interested in like, can we measure this? Can we capture these phenomena? Um, other things that this area of uh, knowledge endeavor, we'll call it a knowledge endeavor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's... Uh, focuses on is uh, psychokinesis, which is like influencing matter, time, space, energy, stuff like that. Near-death experiences, reincarnation, and apparitional experiences, okay. which uh, interestingly, their approach to apparitional experiences is like ghosts and poltergeists and stuff, but they never attribute it to like afterlife spirits and stuff. It's actually um, what's called, what did they call it? It's like recurrent psychic phenomena that they like tethered to like experiences of trauma or like um stuff going on in your like personal life or environment that are disturbing that are triggering your like psychokinetic abilities like innate psychokinetic abilities and so you attribute them to an entity that you call a poltergeist but really you're the one who's causing it because you're not controlling your powers young skywalker <laughs> i mean like i want to say like well that's better i guess i don't know uh, um, yeah like it's kind of impressive so like the goal of parapsychology was to be a subfield of psychology and they actually did have their own little slice of the apa like in the 30s Wow. And so they presented research there in the first several issues of their journal um, that uh, came out of Duke University was dedicated to their experimental conditions, um, okay. critiques from psychologists who were not studying the paranormal, um, yeah. and lots of stats because these people are obsessed with probability research. So like early, maybe the the earliest Bayesians? I think they might be some of the earliest Bayesians because like all of their paradigms were based around probability. Like you had to reach a certain yeah. threshold for the paradigm in order to suggest that that thing, whether it be telepathy or like clairvoyance or whatever, um, like it had to be, the odds had to be greater than chance in order for um them to say hey we found support that this thing might be a thing i mean at least they're approaching it from that way like at least there's some like let's try to let's try to think about this mm -hmm. in some sort of statistical uh analysis which what i'm bringing to the table in this episode has none of that <laughs> um they they just pretend to be psychological um and and publish in everything that's not a psych journal mm. um yeah so at least there's an attempt yeah no they i mean because it was founded by a botanist and a psychologist so like, right they yeah. knew like how to set up an experiment that's cool um I think the most common paradigm that people might be familiar with are the uh, cards that have the different yeah. symbols on them to test for ESP. And they did different research methods where it was like the person's in the room with you, the person's in a different room, you know, the person 
um, differing levels of intelligence. They would do personality assessments on them before they let them in and did the experiment to see if there were associations of personality. Um, it, it, it leads some credence to the beginning of Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. That, that, no, like you could see this in a quote unquote psych lab. Maybe not in the 80s. No, not in the 80s. Like, it was around. Um, so there was some. Let's see. Where is this? Is this actually at Stanford? Oh, no. This is a nonprofit. Um, or is it a trustee? Oh, no. It was established by the trustees of Stanford University. So parapsychological work was conducted at the Stanford Research Institute during the ah. 70s and 80s. Oh, okay. So and... completely plausible then. Let's see. There's also one at Princeton called the Princeton Engineering Abnormalities Research Laboratory. Um, the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Heard of them. Uh-huh. So there was some stuff there. Let's see. In 1985, a chair of parapsychology was established within the Department of Psychology at the University of Edinburgh. And was okay. given to uh, Robert Morris, an experimental parapsychologist from the United States. Again, we are in the wrong line of work. We really are. I think. We might also be in the wrong timeline, too. That's true. Yeah, if we were, you know, we were doing research like 50, 60 years ago, uh, <laughs> we could have maybe gotten away with some of this. Mm -hmm. published in an apa journal right no it's absolutely i was unaware of how popular it was um but it seems to have died down quite a bit um since the eight seventies 70s and 80s uh let's see there's two universities in the united states right now so the university of virginia uh, Department of Psychiatric Medicine studies the possibility of survival of consciousness after bodily death, near-death experiences, and out-of-body experiences. And then there's a Veritas laboratory at the University of Arizona, which investigates uh, mediums. And let's see. And then there's some private institutes. So there's two places currently that are doing it in the United States. Um, it still seems to be rather popular in the UK, though. From what I can gather. Wow. <laughs> so, but yeah. Um, and then my example uh, for a novel approach to uh, parapsychological research. So this was done by Watkins and Watkins in 1971. And uh, let's see. So... 12 subjects, nine of them were professed psychics or known to be exceptional performers on ESP tests, were tested for their ability to cause mice to arouse more quickly from ether anesthesia than normally would be expected. Pairs of mice were simultaneously rendered unconscious. The pairs were of the same sex, comparable size, and were littermates. After both mice were unconscious, the subject was told to attempt to awaken his or her mouse. The other mouse was used as a control. The results were highly significant overall, with the experimental animal requiring 
uh, as much time to awaken as the control. What? Yeah. <laughs> so use your mind to wake up the unconscious mouse while your timer is the uh, mouse's litter mate in the cage next to it that was uh, put unconscious at the same time as the one that you're supposed to wake up. And and are they in the room with the mouse that they're supposed to wake up? Uh, yes, it looks like it. This yeah. is just an excerpt. You have to be an actual uh, member of the uh, Parapsychology Journal there. Association in order to read their stuff. Sure, of course. Of course, right. So, right. question mark there. Uh, they're not open science friendly, but they do have a nifty little special edition that's free to read, which oh. is basically just the history of the organization and their methods ah. and stuff. So, rather nice. interesting. <laughs> um. I mean, like, if if someone were to say, like, hey, could you design me a study to, like, see if this is a thing? I'd be, this is probably what I would do. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd want, I don't know. I mean, maybe there's, I, like, I would need to know more information about the, the conditions of the room and whether or not there were some things in the room that might help stimulate the mouse to mm -hmm. wake up earlier. Um, Let me see yeah. if I just copy and paste this almost APA citation um, into Google Scholar and see if I can find some more details on their method. Because, <laughs> uh, what? If not, we could sci-hub it. We could sci-hub. Well, then, like, as... Right, like, who, who's who got the credentials to give it to sci-hub? <laughs> right. Oh, Maybe man. we need to start a para sci-hub. Oh. And then we, too, can go flee in the wilderness of Russia. Uh, no, I'm okay. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, like, there's definitely part of me that's like, big kudos to, to these researchers who are trying to make this as scientific as possible. And then again, like the same thing with like the cards, like, if you were going to tell me to come up with a, a study that has people predict symbols on cards, and to do it with like yeah people they know versus people they don't same room different room all these little differences and to see if they could if they could do it you know self-proclaimed psychics can do it uh better than chance i would probably come up with something very similar i mean it sounds sound but <laughs> um it's Ooh. all working on the premise that we have this sort of, or at least some people have, this sort of innate psychic ability. And that in itself can't be tested. I uh, don't have the full article out of Google Scholar, but it says, after both mice were unconscious, they were removed to plastic pans and taken to the area in which the subject was seated. The lids of the pans were then removed and the subject was told to attempt to waken his or her mouse. The other mouse was used as a control. Tests were conducted, one with the subject, an experimental mouse in one room and the control mouse in another, two with the subject and both mice in the same room, and three with both mice in the same room and the subject viewing them through a one-way glass from an outside room. The results were highly significant overall, P less than 0. 0.00001. 
the experimental animal requiring 87% as much time to awaken as the control. Uh, let's see. And then that, that doesn't give me the rest of the article, but that's in there. Uh, Do they say uh, what analysis they use to test that? Because all I could think of is, is that like, I can get really significant findings too with, with an N of 12. Oh, right. And that's a really low N could inflate some of those findings if there's just one or two exceptional cases or are they testing just the differences in the three conditions because Mm -hmm. if the conditions weren't that different that doesn't give any credence to willingness to wake up it just there's just so many other questions to it i'd love to read their limitations let me so i'm going to throw another (laughs) monkey wrench in this too they say that a single run is 24 trials. Okay. Is that 24 mice that they've, or I guess 48 mice that they have made unconscious, like one at a time, and let them wake up? And then the participant has to like get their mouse to awaken psychically quicker than the control. And then yeah. every instance is like a point. Maybe again, I I would have to see their data. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll do some more hunting and see if I can find this. But I will say, uh, there has been seventy five citations for this article. <laughs> okay, I mean, again, I would love to see who's citing it too. Uh, let's see, Journal of Parapsychology. Because is this, this just is... like everyone citing themselves kind of thing? Maybe there's journals of alternative healing on here. Okay. Global advances in health, therapies in health. I mean, it it sounds like it's probably also being cited in some of those like international bunches of letter combinations that have conferences all over the world mm-hmm. and will publish anything uh, that I get emails for quite regularly see journal of scientific explorations another parapsychology journal journal of science and healing the journal of the british society of dowsers Ooh, the dowsing professionals yeah they use that in hunting ghosts too Uh uh-huh they have the dowsing rods yep get some of those (laughs) Let's see, subtle energies and energy medicine journal archives. <laughs> we need to publish in that. You know, the funny thing is, is that we probably could, and whoever is assessing our tenure portfolio would have no idea. Would have no idea. No yeah. idea. Especially if we published enough to where it's just like this big wall of text. Like, mm-hmm. are they going to read every citation we've done? Especially if we make it, like, the, the title sound really uh scientific. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of jargon. Those classic uh, pseudoscience moves. Mm-hmm. Iffy peer review. Lots of jargon. Yeah. I think we yeah, can do I wonder it. what the peer review is for this journal. I'm sure it's not great, but I don't know. Maybe they do keep up a good peer review. Again, like like we're talking about ex quote unquote experts in the field. And so are they having people with a stats and methodological background, or they have people people who are looking at this and it's basically confirmation bias? Mm-hmm. Oh, hey, this 
this person with a psych degree is writing about something I'm interested in and they're supporting my cause. Cannot mm-hmm. attend. They have grants. All right. Well, we're, you know, we're, we're switching. We're sorry for what we said before. Uh, we are, <laughs> we are moving forward. Totally legit. Completely <laughs> legit field uh, that we will be uh, moving forward. This is now a um, parapsychology season. <laughs> <laughs> All hail our new Grant overlords. Oh, man. Oh, I don't know. This uh, research endowment's only $5,000. What about the Gilbert Roller Fund? I mean, we could do a lot with $5,000. We could do a lot with five. Uh, this is $10,000 per year until the full amount of the donation is exhausted. Okay. Give you a little. I want a student travel fund. How thoughtful. Cool. Yeah. I think we could pull that off. There's a YouTube channel. Oh, of course nope. there is, Thomas. There something went wrong. Oops, oh, something no. went wrong. There's no YouTube channel. Oh no. <laughs> Your computer has a virus now. <laughs> it's oh uh, man. Poltergeist. <laughs> yep. I, so, I don't yeah, know. Maybe that's I... that's our next auto ethnography. Like we'll do an auto ethnography. We'll we'll apply for a grant. We'll do some paranormal funding and we'll we'll get published and we'll write about the process to shine light on it and then they will never talk to us again probably i think i mean are we willing to burn that bridge though tom i think after i don't i think they just need to listen to this episode and then not we burn the bridge yeah Yeah. i don't think there is a bridge to burn at this point oh well so but yeah no that's parapsychology they're you know puttering along but they did have a pretty well esteemed beginning um it seems and they do love themselves some uh probability models so kudos to them yeah i mean this sounds like what we talked about before and i think one of our goals is to talk about like the kernel of truth and all of this and that this definitely seems like something with good intentions that is not really produced um, or seemingly may have produced some stuff, but it's behind some paywalls and mm-hmm. though as is a lot of science. Um mm-hmm. that yeah, maybe what we're dealing with here is is something that again, like like is is trying to take that step in the right direction, but is kind of caught up in the fact that like they're dealing with stuff that we cannot test. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not that they're trying to find ways to test it, but like that mouse study is basing its assumption on the fact that this exists to start with mm-hmm. and so it's it's not starting with like like can we actually test this officially it's saying no no, no this exists we're just going to show you a way that it can be applied mm-hmm. um and I, and I could be misrepresenting I, I would need to read the full article to better under but it, it that's my take it's my hot take on it so it far it does give me like I'll see if I can find the full article and we can give an update on the yeah, uh, unconscious mice next week but it does seem like they have set themselves up to be for their hypothesis to be falsifiable like the mice just have to wake up at the same it's time true. or the control has to yeah. wake up earlier like that would be how that hypothesis would be rejected then yeah but like I want to go back to like Rosenthal and Jacobson like early bright and dull rat study with the grad students that found that just like differences in handling your mouse and being told you have a dumb mouse versus a bright mouse changed how those mice performed. Mm-hmm. And 
how the experimenter can influence or the people in the room can influence the outcomes of the study, uh, Mm -hmm. especially with animals. And it just sets off a lot of red flags for me and questions when we look at studies that were done 60 years ago, Mm -hmm. 50 years ago on, on similar things of just how these little, little changes in the environment can throw off uh, the findings just again, based on those expectations. If you're expecting one mouse to, to wake up faster, there could just be little things that, Mm. that can influence that. And it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard to like suss those things out. So I don't Right. That brings a whole lot of people's research into question. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. That's why we're talking replication crisis still. <laughs> um. Oh, yeah. That's, that's. I mean, it's fascinating. And at least there's like, there are some people trying to make it real in psychology or try to legitimize it a little better or approach it from a, a much more scientific background, which is it's like the best we're gonna get this season. Yeah, I think so. No, I was I was fairly impressed and relieved when I was reading through this. I was like, this is pretty benign. And like, you know, good for y'all for trying to make it work, but like I don't think you're gonna be like building up a theory of clairvoyance that's applicable anytime yeah. soon. Yeah. I mean I'll keep an open mind, but as of right now, I'm not convinced. <laughs> an open mind for clairvoyance <laughs> yes and and a much bigger open mind for that than what i did research on Ooh, for this episode me. so unlike parapsychology which is at least trying to be scientific and there are attempts i will give the people who are doing graphology or handwriting analysis some credit that that there is there there is an attempt um, however, that attempt kind of ended in the Renaissance. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh no. Um, so if you go to their actual website, so one of the websites, ooh, that one didn't. Um, so there's there's a particular history of graphology on the British Institute of Graphologists. Mm. Or big. Uh, okay. Yeah. So it's it's uh big graphology, literally. <laughs> Like, we're going up against big graphology here. Um, the history starts it off with the Sumerian manuscripts, first to codify language in 3000 BC. So that's how old handwriting analysis is. It's as old as handwriting itself or writing itself. Um, and it, it actually says that, um, so that was recognizable script. It actually says, according to them, that the earliest understanding of an individual's character from their handwriting goes back to 500 BC when Confucius warned, quote, beware of a man whose writing sways like a reed in the wind. Mm. Well, to corroborate these uh, claims, I have the complete illustrated book of the psychic sciences by Gibson and Gibson here. Mm -hmm. And they claim that uh, graphology has been around since before the pyramids, but they're not nearly as specific about uh, Confucius. Yeah, no, true graphology, though, according to the graphologists, not the psychic people. These are hardcore researchers, Thomas. Mm, right. From the big, they're big 
from Big. the British Institute of Graphology. Gotcha. Um, it actually goes back to the 1600s. There was an Italian physician, and it was taught in in Bologna, Italy. Uh, it's the home of the oldest university, and they still teach graphology there. Hmm. Um, it's from Italy that graphology has become a recognized subject in the study of human nature and identity all over the world. Uh, it was picked up again in 19th century France, and that's kind of where it becomes popular. And if you look at the timeline from 1622, when this Italian doctor, Camillo Baldi, uh, wrote how to recognize from a letter the nature and quality of a writer. To 1965 with Francis Hilliger, who's a student of, of Dr. Eric Singer, who is an Austrian living in England, published a bunch of stuff on, on graphology, uh, wrote this book. And then there's really nothing after 1965. Hmm. They don't really like, then the Institute was, was formed in 1983 and they don't really have any other history. Um, I have looked on Google Scholar. I was interested in seeing, like, I, I put in psychology, graphology. I wanted to see what was out there. Um, it is split into two camps. There are the recent publications that are not published in any psych journal. And so they are um, things like uh, the IAPR conference on a number of things including statistical pattern recognition there's the journal i'm worried about clicking on some of these links uh even on <laughs> google scholar uh this is the journal of electrical and computer engineering uh there's this great book called intelligent internet of things for smart healthcare systems there's a chapter this is like 2023 publications this wow. one's in this one's in german um this is history of the uh, history of the human sciences talks a little bit about uh the gatekeeper of french psychology uh henry perron uh metapsych's border or metapsyche's border um so there's a lot of stuff out of psychology being published recently but in psychology it like tapers off in the 80s there's a lot of stuff in the 70s and 80s that's just like we studied it it's kind of BS. Mm -hmm. um, I'll give you this quote. This is from, um, oh, it reloaded. Ben Shakir and, uh, oh, there we go. Um, ben Shakar, Bar Hillel, uh, B.U. et al. There's, there's a number of authors. 1986, can graph, graphology predict occupational success? Two empirical studies and some methodological ruminations. And so they basically had <laughs> empirical studies done where they had both a, a certified kind of graphologist and a layperson predict success. Um, so let's see, where's the study one? In study one, graphologists rated 80 primarily uh, uh, 19 to 27-year-old bank employees on several job-related traits based on handwritten biographies. And so again, they can then guess, they can look at the, the ratings compared to actual performance. Mm -hmm. um, and then in study two, they judge the profession out of eight possibilities of 40 successful professionals. So these are successful people. What is their profession based on their handwriting? 
Um, results indicate that the graphologist did not perform significantly better than chance model. Uh, and then they discussed the flaws of graphological research. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So uh, the model also for the first study, the model outperformed the human judges. Ah. And so, yeah, yeah that uh, the graphologist and the clinician's correlations with the criterion were, were typically between 0.2 and 0.3. Um, mm. So, yeah. Not good. So, not good. Not um, good. Yeah, and so that's basically what psychology's been writing about this. And so psychology's kind of been on the um it doesn't exist front for like 50 years, years, 60 yeah. years uh cuz there's stuff that goes back to the 70s that that we're writing about it. Um there's this great article and I'm going to post the link by Ann Trubeck uh, uh on uh JSTOR Daily and it's called Sorry, Graphology Isn't a Real Science. And it talks about like a, a breakdown of why it doesn't hold up. And it was prompted because um, amongst other things, this was during the Trump administration. And apparently back in 2013, he tweeted, I'm a handwriting analyst, uh, analyst. Jack Lou, who I think is the, uh, was the treasury secretary at the time. Jack Lou's handwriting shows while strange that he is very secretive, not necessarily a bad thing. Um, so like, cool. Um, <laughs> but, um, it, it does highlight that it is, it is deemed a pseudoscience by most, mm -hmm. except for usually graphologists, um, yeah. who are using it, especially in the UK. Yeah. To do everything from like act as expert witnesses and trials to analyze authors and and other writers in history to look at how like hitler's script versus churchill's script or like you pick you know people who are deemed evil versus not um are different in different ways but um yeah it's it's important to note that like many of the techniques that are used haven't really been updated since renaissance england interesting like we're talking Nothing like relatively school. new. Yeah. Yeah. This is like alchemy nonsense. <laughs> it it kind of is. And I, I I went and did some deep diving, and like I, I'll admit, I'm not a complete expert on graphology. It doesn't sound like I, anybody is. <laughs> well, I mean, there are some people, like you can get a course on my new favorite website, businessballs.com. Uh, they have a lot of different courses, and one of them is on graphology. And it's from okay. graphology, from, from their website that I learned about Elaine Quigley. And so okay. she, at the time of, of the writing of this, was the chair of the British Institute of Graphology. And if you, if you get your certification from them, you can get a diploma or like a master's from the British Institute of Graphology which you get to put as your letters behind your name because because she has a BA in honor, a B, a Bachelor of Arts honors yeah. degree. Um, and then her other degree is an MBIG dip, <laughs> which I'm guessing stands for diploma. So yeah. so it's, it's an MBIG. So I guess a master's from the British Institute of Graphology diploma. Or the Embig dip. The Embig dip. And you too 
can get an big dip. You have to pass. You have to. You have to be tutored by one of their members. Okay. And you kind of enroll. I, I don't know if it's like a course. They have. There's a syllabus. And you have to complete six exams. Okay. And so my understanding is like the learning side of this isn't necessarily doesn't necessarily cost you anything but it might if you need to be tutored okay by someone with an mbig dip <laughs> and i just want to say that as many times as possible before we end this episode um good old mbig dip <laughs> for inter- for international students it's about 150 pounds um, okay. per test so it's about oh, 900 God. pounds total um, and then there's like your annual fees and stuff like that to become a member. You get a bunch of stuff. You can be a student member for like 50 pounds a year. Um, and uh, you too can be a member of big. Um, yeah. Uh, so I realized that there is more to this. And since 1983, uh, for the last 39 years, um, Almost 40 years. They're hitting their 40th anniversary this year. I know that because I was born in 83. So I know how old I am. Um, you can you can become a member of the big and get your your in big dip. Uh, um, it, it gets you a bunch of stuff. You get a subscription to the big journal. Oh my god. It's entitled <laughs> The Graphologist. And okay. it frequently it frequently publishes written transcripts of lectures given in London. Um and you get a list of all issues dating back to 1983. So a lot of transcripts and talks. Uh reduced admission fee to their program of lectures, workshops, and seminars. They're not free. Mm-hmm. Just cheaper. Yeah. Um access to media pages, full access to their book list and glossary. Um, access to video lectures, free access to monthly study groups hosted by uh, John Beck via Zoom link. I'm not sure who, I think Beck's one of their, they have a whole list of their people. Uh, And only honorary elected and graduate members are approved by the Institute to practice professionally. So you Mm -hmm. can get certified and practice professionally as a member of BIG. With that in BIG did. Yes, you have to take their their. You have to finish the part three exam and gain your M big dip, your M big diploma. <sighs> yeah, and it's look, Thomas. I I went and looked through this. It's really fascinating. Um, they tend to rate everyone based on how they write in the center area, and if your if your your words move above that center area, you're moving from the ego level to a super ego level. And if you have a lot of stuff underneath, that's more of an id level. And so Mm. like really big flowy, like G loops and Y loops typically seem to to be tied to, to a number of different things. Um, Again, it's really hard to pin it down because while there are some basics, you have to look at all these different things Mm -hmm. and they include things like, if you're altruistic, you tend to have your movement for writing tends to be moved to the right and it's in the middle zone. So it's very ego aspect. If you're ambitious, you have uneven pressure. 
speed of writing, large capital letters, rising T-bars. So like when you cross your teeth, they rise. Uh, extensions into the upper and lower zones. Sure. Uh, yeah. Um, let's find so if you're if you're cruel, your I dots and T bars tend to be heavy and pointed. Terminals are pointed and downward. You're pasty and you have very heavy pressure versus light pressure, which means that you're probably kinder. Calm. Mm -hmm. You have even pressure if you're more calm. Um people who 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 are dealing with uh, depressive characteristics have downward baselines, terminal strokes on the last letter. Uh, descending lines, letter forms sort of crumble and like they're not even and consistent. And it just keeps going on from there. It's it, it's basically like reading tarot when <laughs> we went over yeah. it together. You just kind of make up a story based on what you see. Um, it's there's there's a lot, and I'm sure you could just keep writing all sorts of stuff. Um, I don't know. I now want to like do a do a heavier analysis. Um, it's also important that you can't. You're not supposed to rate an image of someone's work. You have to get them to write then and there. Oh, okay. I, Interesting. I mean, I think you can. Like, if we're looking at it historically, but for a lot of like doing an official study, you definitely want more uh, people coming in and writing as opposed to having them write and submit it. The one thought I do have that might be maybe like there's a aspiring graphologist working on their in big dip right now listening. But I'm wondering Doubtful. if you give a bunch of handwriting samples and tether them to say Twitter accounts of people or Amazon accounts or Facebook accounts, if they're if a bot would be able to identify patterns of handwriting. And then find a like regression relationship with like weird things that we would not necessarily theorize would be associated with them. Maybe. I mean, so like there's a grain of truth in 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 aspects of handwriting analysis. And the grain of truth is, is that you can identify people by the way that they write, not yeah. their personality traits, but like forensic analysis. Mm -hmm. So we can say, all right, yeah, the same person wrote this or that these are very similar and use it as a piece of evidence in something mm -hmm. like a forensic case. Um, and I mean, I would probably make the argument that if you identify with certain aspects of these handwriting traits and you're like, well, like extroverts write this way and introverts write this way. Maybe. I mean, because it's then that like, becomes part of your like if you're consciously engaging in that, but yeah. but but they would also say on their websites that you can't kind of fool the uh, the mind. Mm -hmm. um, you can't uh, like like this is this is this is like at some sort of like unconscious level yeah. that that it's it's mind writing. It's 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 your your brain kind of creating this, despite the fact that we have to learn how to handwrite. Mm -hmm. that our handwriting in part is tied to certain aspects of personal style my signature is just something that like i've practiced since i was like yeah okay that looks good mm -hmm. like there there is thought put into like how i'm going to write my d when i'm signing my name or my c when i'm signing my name 
Um, but it, it has nothing to do with like whether or not I'm an extrovert. But maybe maybe it does. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. I feel like the at least this may have been the way I was taught about handwriting was that it doesn't really matter what it looks like if somebody can read it, except for your signature, which you need to be able to write over and over and over and over and right. over again when you buy a car and not like kill yourself. Yeah. And so like it was like a practical bit of advice. And so but I like for the T and Thomas, like I actually went through and looked at different signatures and I was like, how are people doing T's? And then I picked one that I liked the best. And um, I didn't get it from Henley, but Henley and I have the same T in our like signatures because it's like a little triangle. Yeah. That you send off so you can then right, do a downstroke. You have to write like so that people un- like recognize, oh, this is you. Yeah. Like there's like for me, there's the D, there's the C. That's what I'm looking for. Um, and so like my D is very, you know, it's like kind of big in there. My C is very big. And then kind of like the rest of my name is a scribble. Um, mm-hmm. because again, like I just it's recognizable. Um, yeah, I, I found this 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 lecture uh PowerPoint from a community college um on some sort of like I think it's an English class uh on handwriting analysis that kind of talks about it a little more. And there's there's a quote in here that that kind of gets into it. Oh, it's it's um handwriting is really brain writing and you can't fool your brain no matter how hard you try. That's from Marianne Matthews, who is not a psychologist. I'm gonna take a guess. Yeah, Marianne, like the brain is the laziest, yeah. stupidest organ. <laughs> oh, so she she wrote handwriting dot uh, ca professional handwriting analysis overview so they're california handwriting gotcha um yeah they think it's it's just some interesting stuff about like and, and again like it, it goes into the same thing of like if your words are spaced out or your lines are separated too far that means um like if they're evenly spaced that means clear thought you have the ability to organize your work if they're crowded you have more confused thinking um that uh, the amount of spacing that the writer leaves between the letters, words, and lines indicates their general compa- uh, companionableness, how they react in close personal associations and in relation to their overall environment. And that last part is underlined with an exclamation point at the end. So if, if your partner writes stuff concisely and organized that they're willing to have better companionship. But if, if, if everything's like too tightly together, maybe they're too clingy. If it's too spaced out, they're going to push you away. And I'm making that up, but it sounds like, sounds like something I could probably find it. Yeah. Light and heavy pressure, large writing, whether you're in the middle zone versus the upper and lower zone is like an it ego, super ego thing. It's, um, it's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. but yeah, i'm I just mean, double checking my psych uh yeah your psychic sciences. sciences book it pretty much tells me the same thing they get into things like uh angles yeah so like the listener can't see this but there's like a chart for angles and it walks you through like what happens if you ride at a 90 degree slant or something like that there's some stuff in here about signatures um but it's not really like 
terribly interesting. They said they just make some uh, modifications to regular rules for handwriting analysis uh, wow. because, like, they're stylized and individualized, and they tend to break handwriting rules on purpose. I mean, what I would say with this is is to kind of finish it off. Like, what's the grain? Like, like, there's no science backing it up. This mm-hmm. is this is the cold reading at its best. This is horoscopes mm-hmm. put in a more palatable form. So, you know, if you're against horoscopes, if you're against, you know, kind of personality tests, you're against the big five, but still want to determine someone's personality. Uh, handwriting analysis is the way for you. Yeah. There's one thing that I read a while back, and this could be me just like, you know, putting misinformation into the audio pool, but uh, the bigger the writing, the less focused or awake somebody is in the moment of writing, whereas like the smaller the writing, the more like energized they are. So like, you're like super into it and you like drink a lot of coffee or whatever, like your writing's going to be small and sharp. But if you're like sleepy and you're trying to make your grocery list, then it's going to be rather large and sloppy. So So, you can like read the person's current state or energy level based on when they wrote something. I don't know about that, but what graphology would say (laughs) is that the size of letters can reveal how we, and this is underlined with an exclamation point, may fit in with our environment. So if you're very large writing, uh, it's a demand for attention or a need for elbow elbow room. So you, you it's it's both. You either want the focus on yourself or you need some space. <laughs> yeah. And a small Comes middle. Yeah. And a small middle zone is you're reserved, intelligent, modest, unassuming. Got to keep small. Um, also, like the ability to concentrate. And then it's a very like non spotlight. So again, you're like tiny. And and they because they, they look at things like that. It says you know um, we look at it in different zones: uh, the middle zone, the upper, and the lower. Uh, the middle zone is the baseline, and that um, that's how we better understand how the writer uses their mind, their emotions, and the physical elements in their environment. Mm. Which again, like what? <laughs> It doesn't doesn't like mean anything. Um, but I mean, if you have someone again who like is a strong like a strong believer in that, and it would make sense. I mean, it, it seems to make common sense to me. Like like you said, like if someone's really excited, like your emotional state's high, you're not going to be focused enough to like write really neatly, and so having messier writing or being mm-hmm. you know, having bigger writing. Um, I mean, just what does it say for like people who are just sloppy writers? <laughs> I mean, if you're, I don't know, like, I guess I could say that you're not neurotic if you're a sloppy writer. <laughs> I'd also wonder if like differs because like I don't know. I I'd love to hear what a graphologist says because like I tend to intermingle like my my script and um standard text, mm-hmm. so I'll write in like normal case. And I'll and then half of the word will be in script. Um, yeah. Usually, just like because usually, if I have to write something nowadays, I ha- it's got to be quick. 
um, it's just a little quick note or, or I, I need to like, like write something out, like everything's digital now. So that'll be interesting too. Like what, how does this evolve in, in a digitized world, Thomas? Like, do we, do we just start looking at signatures? Or Possibly, do... but really, like I don't know. Do people have signatures still? I mean, we still have to sign stuff, on... but they can also just put X on stuff. Maybe there's a psychological difference between the person who signs and the person who X's. Uh, their local school district discontinued cursive writing as a. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's just a confound. Uh... Oh, okay. <laughs> um. I don't know. I mean, maybe we get into like font choice. Like if you're using Times New Roman or Calibri oh, versus possibly. like if you're a monster and you use Comic Sans to type anything. Um, Honestly, Calibri is kind of in the bucket with Comic Sans for me. I mean, it's like what the standard email. That's terrible. I mean, having been trained on 12 point times New Roman for like the last 20 years of my career. Um, what is your favorite font? Like if you were I, to just pick one to write in, just Baskerville. Oh no. Oh, Baskerville. <laughs> Wingdings. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I'm going to go a classic times New Roman. Like, cause that's okay. what I have to, what I type all my papers in. It's, it's what we got to use or what we're supposed to use for, um, for APA style, so it's just it's comfortable. Gotcha. It's a good, solid font. That's all I need. But I don't know. Maybe that's our next study. Like font preferences. Yeah, font preferences, and what does it say about you? I mean, it's clickbaity enough. I'm sure we could get in JS, JPSP. I mean, we just have to tether it to something. Now, I did. Oh, before we get off this, my favorite is Avenir. Okay. Avenir is my favorite because it's like skinny and like mm-hmm. it's blocky and so it's easy to read. But um, I will say that the parapsychology specifically does not study astrology, UFOs, cryptozoology, paganism, vampires, alchemy, or witchcraft. Oh, Those I don't want to be a part limits. of it then. Yeah, no, like they have their like uh, epistemology well, like, they- set up. <laughs> But like our studies on that aren't about the existence or non-existence of it, but about how belief in it is tied to the person, the person mm-hmm. and and their their thoughts and the social influences that may lead to those thoughts, which grounds it more in social psychology, psychology yeah. than anything else. <laughs> so, yep. well... So that's my thoughts on graphology. Again, like I think there's a there's a kernel of like wanting to understand, much in the same way as like, and I don't know, maybe there's money involved because <laughs> it's not cheap to take those tests. Um, and then also like once you've taken those tests and become a member of the big, um, once you become a member of the big, like it's a sunk cost fallacy. Like you've already spent a thousand dollars plus to become a member of the big. And so, and now you have those letters that M big dip at the end of your name. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've also learned like like the more and more I delve into like pseudoscience stuff, the more letters someone has at the end of their name, the more I get worried. Unless they're in the business department, and oh, also I get a, I, I, yeah, I, no. I also get a little worried. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
but yeah, if it's just like if it's like MA, MS, PhD, but it's usually like MA, PhD, (laughs) M dip, M big dip, just keeps going. Yeah, no, and like become more and more concerned. And there's like a general rule of thumb, like for all you psych students out there, like as soon as you get a degree higher than the one that you already have. You drop the lower one and take on the big one. Yes. You don't list AA, BS, MS, PhD. Like it's just PhD. Just your highest. Yeah. And and the same would work if I had like a BA in in honors and an M dip big. If the M dip or the M big dip, if M-big the M big dip is the higher degree, that's the only one I list. Yeah. Um so if I got one, I would not put it at the end of PhD. Mm-hmm. I would just keep my PhD, but also put my certificate on the wall, like my yes. like my Doctor of Divinity that I have on the wall. <laughs> right? Yeah, you would put like the end dip on the resume or CV, and yes, not do it in your signature or business card. So I mean, I don't, I don't put my my ability to officiate a wedding on. On my uh, but I could, right? You could. Like, I could go get a doctorate of divinity for like twenty bucks online, Thomas. <laughs> um, I mean, I could. Uh, I can get it from the same place I got my certificate, my you know, and got ordained. Like I could mm-hmm. do it. Um, and if a priest were listening to this, they'd be like, "Oh man, I went through all that work to get ordained, and this person went and got a certificate online." Um, and that's how we feel when I look at, that's how I feel at least when I look at M big dip M big, yeah, but it's going on my, like, if I ever get some like weird grant money to spend, I'm getting my M big dip Thomas. Oh, okay. I'll <laughs> let you spend 900. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to spend any money out of my own pocket. If someone wants to like, give me some big grant money, some, some big M big uh, grant money, some M big dip grant money. <laughs> uh, then I will do it. So, yeah. So, like, this is again, like, we're we're in like like baby gloves territory right now when it comes to pseudoscience. This stuff is it's it's fun to talk about. I, though I am kind of worried about the handwriting analysis, especially if they are using it to like go give expert testimony in court. Yeah. I'm very concerned about it. That's a little bad. Yeah. But I, I feel I feel much better about parapsychology stuff than I, I did before we started talking about this. I do too. I and, was surprised. Yeah. And at face value, I'm not too worried about someone who's interested in graphology. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially it, if it's like, I don't know, you have fun. honestly the graphology and the in big dip stuff remind me of the Myers Briggs. Yeah, I mean they are being used pretty heavily in like companies. And mm-hmm. stuff like that. But again, like I'm also really worried. Like, if you're gonna decide to hire someone based on their handwriting, ooh, there's just there's nothing in the psych research that supports that. I mean, it's the same thing if you want to do it with the Byers Brig. Oh yeah. Oh, I mean so, so I have some bad news. Okay. So for our ask psychology Reddit oh. question. Yeah. In searching uh, it was taken down by the moderators while we've been recording but do you have the question still no it's gone ah i mean i'm like but like i can give you the essence of it but i found a backup i found a backup 
What, what was um, the essence of the one that they took down? Because like they, they took it down, it had to be a winner. They wanted to know about alien minds. But like the practical, like how does sensation build into perception to create different kinds of minds that we might be able to expect from alien entities? Oh. Which was really an interesting question. Oh, that is really cool. I mean, that's that's good, like it's speculative. Yeah, it's speculative. Good thought yeah. experiment. I thought it was really cool. Yeah. Like, because we yeah. just covered in Mem and Cog what last week about some like building blocks of what your like sensation perception needs to do and how it's off in schizophrenic patients. So like tethering things in linear time is something that we do automatically. That like when we cluster information and that's off with schizophrenics. And so that because it's a building block that's broken, it creates larger issues and uh attention and perception and short-term memory later in the process. And so I was like, that's cool. I would say that would be a great like final paper for a Mim and Cog class of like use your knowledge of human memory and cognitive processes to speculate. And so they'd have to show their knowledge, but they could be kind of creative with it. You know, it'd be way fun is if I just got a bunch of like die, like nature nurture dice and like rolled them for each student. I was like, all right, your alien grew up on a planet without a sun. Your alien um, grew up as the bottom rung of a predator list. <laughs> right. Like how and the like like you give them at the beginning of the semester and they have the entire semester to write it. And like they can use everything that they've learned and anything they could find outside. And and it's it's very speculative, but they have to ground it in what we know about us. So Ooh, I'm thinking special topics in animal learning. Yeah. That's cool. cool. That's really cool. But again, like I, I get like the kinds of answers I think they would get. The moderators would probably right to shut that one down. Yeah. So I have a good backup. Right. This is a good right. general psychology knowledge backup for our listeners. And I think it's a fair question. Okay. So referring to the big five, is okay. high neuroticism necessarily a bad thing? Are there any advantages to this trait? In general, if you have high neuroticism, should the goal be to reduce it if possible? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um this reminds me, uh, I was was talking with my grad social class, and we were kind of talking about like how can evolutionary psych kind of commingle with social psych, and then how would we kind of we were talking about different perspectives. So social psych mm-hmm. versus evolutionary psych, social psych versus personality. Um, and one of the things that came up was this idea of the like biological um adaptability of traits mm-hmm. and how there's this spin for particularly um neurodivergent traits so diagnostic type traits where look it's actually that that being autistic or or having autism spectrum disorder is a good thing because it developed in this positive way or having ADHD is an adaptive um what's the word i'm thinking of uh it's not it's not a trait like an adaptive mutation mm-hmm. from an evolutionary perspective and how dangerous that can be mm-hmm. because it could one highlight 
negative traits and saying, oh, no, 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 it's adaptive to be a sociopath because it'll get you ahead in business. Um, but also, like, again, like like the issue of like things like self-diagnosis and other things like that. And that's so kind of like the underlying subtext of this question rings to me. Yes. No, and it reminded me of our conversations with Sarah Tracy last fall about like, when is Machiavellianism a good thing? Right. When what's the adaptability of psychopathy? Right. And so, right. And that's that's I definitely picked that up with this question. Um, yeah. My only, I think my comment about it, and I think this is reflected in one of the other comments in this thread, is that the Big Five is like a bipolar metric for each yes. of them. And so the opposite of like extroversion is introversion. The opposite of openness is closedness. The opposite of conscientiousness is like being a sloppy mess. And so for neuroticism, it's uh, emotional stability. Right. And so if you're high in neuroticism, that means you don't have a good grasp of how to deal with your environment or your internal feelings. Which is not a good thing turned into a pattern of personalities outside of just you having low emotional intelligence which is maybe, not ideal <laughs> and maybe we we could take the argument of this is that like a trait neuroticism as as personality psychology would define it trait neuroticism is not something you ever want to stay high yeah you want to be consistently emotionally stable but there may be periods of time in which emotional instability could maybe if you had a certain level of mindfulness cue you in to something going on mm-hmm. or having like a like kind of like your fight or flight response kick in that could be a positive thing if you're a little more like if you're open to that like or, or if, if your if your body can activate that better mm-hmm. in a state but also like we don't we don't want to be emotionally unstable <laughs> That's typically not a good thing in our environment. Right. Yeah, I know. Because if it's trait neuroticism, then that's your like baseline. So maybe that's like an indicator of like where, like if you're thinking in like personal growth terms, like you need to put yes. more time and energy into mindfulness and right. like emotional intelligence. Whereas like if your high trait is in like introversion, but you have a public speaking job, you have to like put in more effort right. to right. be able to maintain that job. And be okay with groups of people and like finding that hat. Me as a but, teacher. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, like every, I just got my confirmation for a talk at a conference or a convention yep. next month. And I'm like, uh, uh, why did I sign up for this? Yeah. I, and I will say, like, when we think about things being adaptive, so like, what possible adaptation of would this have? It is very possible that it is not. And even if we see very high amounts of neuroticism, just because it exists within the world doesn't mean that there is some adaptive trait. That's one of the Mm -hmm. things that I think evolutionary biology is maybe looking at to some extent, but evolutionary psychology is maybe so focused on the past that we're not looking at how people today can survive with very maladaptive mutations. Yeah. In like in genetics, we can have genetic disorders, we can have these severe issues and still go on to be successful reproducers at mm-hmm. a very baseline evolutionary sense. 
which means that those things continue to exist. And so you can be successful and highly neurotic um, or have high neuroticism today. That is not necessarily a good thing just because you are successful. It, mm-hmm. it, it means that maybe we we're in an environment where you could take some anti-anxiety medication and get around it. And it has no baseline benefit mm-hmm. um, other than it makes us really anxious all the time. Um, right. Yeah, I know. Like this is a, this question is rooted in that evolutionary question yeah. of reproductive success, not in the like existential question of like, am I okay with who I am as a person? kind of thing like i would argue yeah. essentially neuroscience is probably not great but like i totally agree and there's also this like i guess an assumption in like lay evolutionary like armchair theorists that yep. like humans are the best that they've ever been right now <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean and that we're no. just gonna continue to get like better right i and that's not the case like we're yeah. fit for our environment now until it changes. Yeah. And we have, we have adapted really well to making our ability to fit with our environment easier than it ever has been. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of things that exist today that shouldn't in a true Darwinian sense. We have mm-hmm. just, we've over, I was thinking of uh, the, the example I used in class last week was uh, like cleft lip. Mm. And so it's basically you have this split. Um, but you can have a surgery to fix it and mm-hmm. go about your life fine. No one would really think too much otherwise, thanks to plastic surgery, except that then you could have a kid and it's genetic. And so the kid has cleft lip, cleft lip. And so it doesn't really hinder because you can have the surgery done. It doesn't hinder your your reproductive success. Right. Um, but that's but it's entirely lurking. on us. Right. It's lurking and waiting for the post-apocalyptic environment to totally like yes. end reproductive yes. success for yeah. people with that. Yeah. And much in the same way that we can make an argument. I mean, people have made an argument about autism spectrum disorder or ADHD or depression. Uh the only the only one that still sticks with me is apparently there was this book I remember reading about it was kind of an evolutionary approach to some things. And they were talking about the likelihood that seasonal affective disorder, still my favorite because it's sad, um, is um, uh, possibly an evolutionary byproduct of not um, needing to be that motivated in the winter. We want to conserve energy mm-hmm. and we want to make sure that we're not burning calories. And so mm-hmm. being kind of kind of depressed or less active but now we associate that that lower activity and that less willing like motivation to work as depression. Yeah. And it's not depression, it's something different. It's but it's maybe tied to kind of a natural cycle that has evolved. And so people just are a little more down when it's gloomy outside or it's raining or it's cold because we have not had the comforts of modern life as long as it takes for like evolution to kick in. Mm-hmm. So I mean, some people are sad. I think in the it's fully inhumane and unreasonable to expect people to work during the winter. Like, yeah, just give to, us like, like three months off. Yeah. Like you need to be worried about making sure you have enough firewood that you're like 
beef jerky and canned goods are going to make it and like fighting off wolves from your sheep like those are the only concerns you need in the winter and not running out of cider so so my question back to the non-psychologist are should we just change summer break to winter like a three-month winter break i think we should because i get my and this may be because like i don't know if this is the same for you but i like associate this with living in texas i get like summer seasonal affective disorder because like it's so goddamn hot and oppressive yeah like i'm alive in the winter like i'm ready to go and do things and write and i have a sleep schedule but like it's awful that's when i need to conserve energy and not die yeah so so short answer uh no, it's not a good thing to have high neuroticism. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, arguably, and I, I don't think you'll find, I don't know, I'd be interested in finding that psychologist who's like, yes, it can be a good thing. I would treat them like I treat the big. Um, that's, no, I don't, I don't trust it. So. <laughs> oh, the last question, the last answer on this thing is from Stephen Dog. I think it's important to remember that evolution doesn't care about happiness. That's not what's being maximized. So from that standpoint, it's possible for a trait to cover, uh, confer sexual benefit, survival benefits, etc., while also being disquieting and unpleasant personally. I would say that if you pulled many potential partners um, of anyone and you asked them like, does someone with severe emotional instability sound like a good person to date? They're going to say no. They're going to say no. And so while while true, evolution does not care about your happiness, um, your potential partner, if you are interested in reproductive success, does. Probably does. Probably does. Yeah. And if they're wise. Oh, yes, that's true. If they're wise. <laughs> uh, and, and maybe you're both emotional messes and like, okay, maybe maybe that works out. But have fun. Yeah. I think that's a good stopping point. That's a good stopping point. (laughs) (laughs) And so I will say on that note, uh, we'll say goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.